kind of three quarters of the way through this series that we're doing on sexuality, um, which we've called the um, sorry Siri has just decided to fire up, um, which we've called the story the rules forgot, and basically what we've been trying to kind of do in this series is kind of like tell this like bigger good news story that's at the heart of the scriptures about sex and sexuality that I think we so often miss because we just are kind of like talking about ethics like in out right wrong we turn things that are meant to be a journey into a binary and. If you've missed the last weeks, do go back and listen again, because a lot of what I will say today won't make complete sense without them. Um, but basically, what we've been saying is that the story of sexuality is ultimately the story of God. It's a story of a God who, who, who loves us and wants us to thrive, but it's also a story of a God who, who, who made us and so kind of knows how we best thrive. Like, sexuality is this good thing that God blesses with. It's not this accident that God then seeks to regulate. It's an intentional part of the way he made us. He's given it to us as a gift for us to enjoy. But it's not just a gift. It's also a sign. It's something that God is, you know, a way in which God has created us that's designed to kind of pull us into him, pull us into his story, um, pull us into with others. Um, and he gives us the two contexts for living that out of marriage and singleness. What I want to do today um, uh, is look at the question of how does this story play out in the lives of those who have non-straight sexual orientation. I say it like that because increasingly uh, people use a, a variety of kind of different words to kind of, I guess, um, explain who they feel they are in their experience of the world. Um, I may sometimes kind of into, um, is that dropping out or is it just me? It is. Shall I do this one instead? Um, we are replacing these, the, uh, do my head in. Um, or yellow. Any better? Great. Say again? So far, good. That, so far, so good. Um, yeah, so I may sometimes collapse into talking about um, gay and straight. Just hear that as a kind of, you know, it's a bit of a mouthful to every time say non-straight sexual orientations. Um, so that's what's going on there. And like I've said every week, and I kind of want to repeat it because it bears repeating, um, you know, I, I would love us to kind of, where, where there's moments of dissonance or disagreement or what have you, or, or where your life story doesn't seem to line up with what I, I'm speaking about, see that as a moment of invitation, not condemnation. It's not a moment like where God's, looking down on you sneeringly. It's certainly not a moment where I'm doing that. Like, this is a redemptive story where we're on a journey with Jesus. Um, and, and equally with that, you know, you don't need to agree with me. But my, my kind of, my challenge, I suppose, my invitation would be to see that as an invitation to wrestle with God in Scripture. Like, is this his heart for your life? Is this what, how he's asking you to live? And if it is, it's, it's because he loves you and it's because he wants you to thrive. And so maybe it's something you want to consider. But the, the wrestle isn't necessarily with what I say. It's kind of, in some ways, with what God is saying in his word. Um, and also, this is a series that we, we've kind of always been saying is for Christians. Um, not that like no one else is welcome, but what I'm saying is that like, I think the way of Jesus is only possible and plausible in intimate relationship with Jesus. And if that's not where you are right now, that's absolutely fine. Um, but the question for you is, is, is probably a different one. It's probably, is this Jesus someone who can be trusted? Because if he is someone who can be trusted, then what he has to say is something that we might want to receive. We've got to start today with a recognition of kind of what I'm going to call the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is this that there is a recognition that the church over many years has done um, grievous kind of wrong 
in, when it comes to kind of talking about those who aren't straight, members of the kind of LGBTQ plus community. Um, whether or not we've personally played a role in that, the reality is this, is that we have been part of a church universal that has been perceived and seen in this way, and that's not something we can kind of just simply stand apart from. You know, LGBTQ plus people have not always found the church a safe place, a welcoming place, a place where they can be themselves or be honest. They've often found it a place of condemnation and ill treatment. We often in the church talked about those who aren't straight as a problem, an issue to debate, an other. Language has been used like aberration and disgusting. And irrespective of what we think ethically, I think it's just really important that we just say that is so profoundly wrong. So profoundly wrong. But it's, it's far too easy, I think, in this conversation to kind of talk about this as an issue and to miss that what we're really talking about is people. We're talking about real lives, real people um, uh, who, who have feelings, who have an experience of this world that we, we can't just dismiss. It's, it's a real one. Um, and kind of with that, I want to say this. If you've received that story, if you've been on the receiving of that story, I just want to say that that's, that's not true. You've been told things that aren't true, like God does not hate you. God loves you. In fact, I kind of go one further than that. I'd say this. There is nothing in Scripture that even suggests that being gay is sinful or dirty or disgusting. If you've heard that, you've been lied to. By contrast, there is nothing in Scripture that says that to be straight is to be holy. The only things that are kind of affirmed or kind of condemned are about how we live out our sexuality. They're about how we channel it. They're about what we do. They're about our actions. They're not about our kind of sexual orientation. It's even debatable whether there's a concept of that within the Scriptures. And so we need to start saying that whoever you are, but especially if you're from the LGBTQ plus community this morning, um, God loves you. He knows you, and he loves you, and he is for you. And if you hear nothing else, if you tune out from this point, um, my, my job is in many ways done. Hear that. So have in your mind real people. When you're speaking to people afterwards, have in your mind real people. Like, you know, you simply do not know what the experience of the person you're talking to is, whether they themselves have a real experience of this, whether, you know, a member of their family or a close friend is, you know, has a, a real experience of this. Like, this isn't a concept, this is a real issue. It might be that actually the person you're speaking to, they may well be in their late 80s, they may well be married, but they may well have had an experience of, you know, um, being attracted to some people of the same sex for their entire life, that they've never felt able to tell a soul. And the way in which you respond to them afterwards might govern whether or not that remains the case for the rest of their life. Okay, a couple of things before we kind of get into some of the questions. Because um, I think there's a lot of nonsense rubbish that's kind of spoken about out there, particularly with the ex-gay movement, that we've kind of just got to clear up a bit. The first is this. Sexuality is not chosen. Um, sexuality is not chosen, but equally, it's, it's not as simple as saying that people are just born this way. The best kind of research out there at the moment is not conclusive, but the, the, you know, the indications it gives are that, that, that sexuality comes about as a result of biological and environmental factors. When I say environmental factors, we don't know exactly what they are. Um, and so it's not like we can say, oh, well, if someone's had this experience in life, then therefore, like, we don't know what they are. Um, all we know is that it's not chosen. The second thing we know is um, that sexual fluidity is a thing. But again, sexual fluidity isn't chosen. 
So sexual orientation is not, as we know, um, kind of changeable, but about probably 40% of the population writ large experience a kind of degree of sexual fluidity. Um, that's something that's individual. Again, it's unchosen, it's circumstantial, and it's not something you can kind of control, predict, or manufacture, so far as we're aware. And like, fluidity doesn't mean your orientation changes, nor does it mean that you're bisexual and you've just kind of been lying to yourself. What it means, in the, in the words of Lisa Diamond, who's the kind of um, psychologist who's kind of written the book on this, um, she says it indicates that sexual orientation does not rigidly predict each and every desire an individual will experience over their lifespan. So orientation does indicate perhaps a dominant um, for some people, exclusive for others pattern. It's not necessarily a rigid one for everybody. Again, though, the key thing is that it's unchosen and indeed circumstantial. What I want to do this morning is I want to ask this question. How does the good news story we've been telling of, of kind of sexuality play out for those who aren't straight? Now, before we get to that question and are able to really talk into it meaningfully, we've got to ask another question, and that's this. What is marriage? Because, of course, the biblical context, as we've been kind of looking at over the last few weeks for sexual relationship, is marriage. Now, in the scriptures, male-female is the kind of sole pattern of marriage that we see. And so, therefore, we've got to ask um, this, this question, which is, um, in the words of Preston Sprinkle, I think he phrases it well. He says this, Can it be shown from scripture that sex difference is not essential for the meaning and purpose of marriage, we could say, as God has created and intended it? Like, can we construct from scripture a definition of marriage without it? Like, how do we answer that question? We've got to do two things, um, I would argue. We've got to look at the scriptures that speak of same-sex relationships directly. They don't define marriage, but bearing in mind that marriage is a sexual relationship and those passages talk about same-sex sex, we've got to kind of look at those. And the second thing we've got to do is look at what the scriptures say about marriage and sex difference. If the answer we get to at the end of this is saying, no, actually, I think sex difference is essential for the meaning, purpose, and definition of marriage, then we've got to conclude that while it might not make sense to us, while it might be something we can't get our heads around, it might feel uncomfortable, we can't change our definition of marriage, and we've got to trust God that his pattern for our flourishing is, that of two people, is, is not of that of two people of the same sex being in a sexual relationship, which we can call marriage. Like, the truth is that we can't just ignore scripture if we don't like it or if it doesn't kind of sit right with us it interprets and shapes us not the other way around and if we can't trust it here then where can we if we can't trust it here then we can't really trust it on jesus we can't just kind of pick um, and choose arbitrarily the bits of scripture we like and say we want to be authoritative because when we start doing that without a justification from Scripture, we are in essence becoming the ultimate authority. To become the ultimate authority is in essence to become God. Like, you know, when we, when we try and do that, what, what are we doing? We're kind of, you know, it's, it's like we're saying God doesn't really know what he's doing, but, but we do. Or, or God's kind of holding out on us. You know, he, he, he's holding back something good from us, and, and, and we think we've spotted it. Um, and we think that actually he's mean and cruel and is trying to kind of restrict us rather than bring us freedom. And so he can't be trusted, so we need to take the reins. 
Like, ultimately, that's the story of kind of Adam and Eve in the garden where they took the fruit. And um, it doesn't end well for them. And so we've always got to kind of be those who sit under his word, whatever his word says. But the question, of course, is what does his word say? So let's look at these two questions. We're going to take the first one reasonably quickly. There are five passages, some would argue six, I would disagree with that, but there are five passages in Scripture that talk directly about same-sex sex. Leviticus, twice, 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, and Romans. Now then, what is undisputed is that all these passages are negative about the same-sex sexual relationships that they detail. Nobody's arguing anything other than that. What kind of the most compelling revisionists, so those who are kind of, I guess, putting forward a case for um, changing our doctrine of marriage, um, tend to argue is that these scriptures are silent into the discussion about um, loving same-sex committed partnerships that we call marriages um, because they're talking about another kind of same-sex relationship. So they're talking about same-sex relationships, but they're talking about oppressive, um, you know, harmful same-sex relationships. And if they're talking about those ones, then they don't have anything to say into our discussion um, because they can't be analogous to same-sex marriage. Now, we haven't got time to go through each of these passages in detail today. Um, uh, So what I have done, because no one wants this talk to be double the length, is... um, uh, People are laughing. I wonder why. Um, Is is I've kind of recorded, which we'll send out on email, so you won't be able to get it unless you're on our email list, so if you're not, come speak to me. Um, a, a kind of run-through of all these scriptures, kind of sharing what I think, but also kind of just framing up some of where the, what the debate's going um, and uh, what some of the, the best arguments for and the best arguments against are and where I've kind of landed on that. What I'm going to give today is just simply my conclusion. My conclusion on this text is this. I don't think that it is biblically plausible to limit the scope of those texts to only certain types of same-sex relationships. And I, I think I find the arguments um, that people put forward for that um, ultimately kind of unconvincing. I think they are making a kind of broader ethical statement. And that's not just what I think. Um, there's actually, surprisingly, a good number of scholars who are arguing for a revisionist position um, who would uh, agree with me on that. Now, I'm skimming over that, and I'm not spending long on that for this one reason. Because even if we delete all those passages and pretend they were never in the Bible in the first place, and at best people just think they're silent, um, the key question still remains. What is your definition of marriage, and where do you get it from? We don't just get to kind of invent a definition of marriage from the sky and, like, and, and share it. You know, we, we kind of, we've got to get it from what's God saying here? What is the definition of marriage that God is giving us? Because he's good, he loves us, he wants what's best for us. Is this male-female definition we see in Scripture an illustrative one? Or is it a descriptive one? And does changing our definition affect anything? Um, To look at this, we need to look at Genesis. Um, In Genesis, Genesis is a key text in so many ways, but it's a key text here because it maps out God's creational intent for this world. And it's it's a story that is restated by both Jesus and Paul in the context of talking about marriage. Let's read it. We looked at this last week. We're going to read a slightly abridged version uh, this week. So Genesis 2 says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone.
closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man, of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a, woman, a man leaves his father and mother, is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Okay. The best, I would argue, revisionist argument, and surprisingly not all the people who write on this seem to engage with Genesis. Um, Stephen Croft, who I know has you know, quite famously spoken about this in the last couple of weeks, kind of gives it a passing mention, says it merits discussion, but doesn't dig into the issues. We need to dig into the issues. Um, the, the argument that they put forward is this, is that sex difference isn't kind of part of the, the focus of the text here, like similarity is. So um, if you're a keen reader, like someone like James Brownson is probably the person who puts forward the strongest kind of um, New Testament academic argument, sorry, biblical um, argument on this. He's, um, he's a scholar in America. He's written a book called Bible, Gender, and Sexuality. It's, a, it's academic, which means it's, it's not the easiest read. Um, but he puts forward the best argument. And basically, he says that what's going on in the text here is it's about similarity. That's what's at stake. It's the similarity of the suitable helper that's given to Adam that's the focus here. You know, so he looks and he says, it's this recognition, you know, bone on my bones, flesh on my flesh. Um, now, if, if that's true, then it, we could make a case of saying that sex difference isn't part of marriage here. And so therefore, you know, sex difference isn't part of marriage, then we can perhaps construct a new uh, kind of version of marriage where same-sex marriage becomes a possibility. So let's examine that. Now, um, I'm just going to come out of the gate and say, I think that actually same sex difference sorry, is integral to the definition of marriage here in Genesis. I want to give four reasons. The first is this, Jesus. Now, some say, and um, Stephen Croft made this claim this last couple of weeks, that Jesus is silent in this discussion. I always get a bit annoyed when people say that Jesus is silent on something because people say it as if they're making a contentful statement and it, it really doesn't necessarily mean anything. I mean, Jesus is silent on pornography, but no one's suggesting that you know, pornography is something that enriches society, blesses marriages, and leads people closer to God. He's silent on kidnapping, but I don't think anyone's recommending it as a result of that. So I'm always a bit kind of like hazy when people say that Jesus is silent on something. But, but my bigger problem with that argument is that it's not true. Like Jesus speaks condemning sexual immorality. When he does that, he uses the Greek word porneia. It's a word that Jesus didn't invent. It's not a word that Jesus uh, like kind of defines for us. It's a word that would have had a common usage in the time in the kind of, uh, among Jewish people. Um, and everyone living at that time when Jesus used that word, when Jesus made those statements, would have understood him to be saying something that was bigger, but certainly would have included a condemnation of same-sex sexual relationships. Um, at very least, if we're going to say that Jesus is silent, we've got to make a case for saying that he would have disagreed with the cultural meaning of that word at his time. But the other reason why Jesus isn't silent is because Jesus talks about marriage, and what he says is interesting. We're going to look at it. So Jesus speaks about marriage in Matthew 19. I think the passage is also in Mark. We're going to read it in Matthew. Um, and he, 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 he quotes the Genesis passage we just looked at. Let's see what he does. It says, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? He's quoting Genesis 1, verse 27. 
and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, quoting Genesis 2, verse 24. We just read it. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, Jesus here isn't, isn't in some ways directly speaking about lots of things, but he, because he's talking about divorce. But what he says about divorce when he's questioned about it is interesting. Jesus quotes Genesis. Why? Because quite clearly for Genesis, what it is saying is significant to Jesus as to what marriage is. Hence, he quotes it into this discussion about divorce. But what's interesting about what Jesus says about divorce is he quotes two verses from Genesis. But he only needs to quote one to make his point. So Genesis um, 2.24, you know, the two will become one flesh, is the only thing Jesus needed to say if he was making a point about kind of marriage being this lifelong thing um, and therefore speaking into the discussion about divorce. But Jesus also quotes Genesis 1, verse 27, which the numbers tell us they're not next to one another, so it's not kind of like, oh, well, he's just quoting a long bit of scripture. He's intentionally making a decision to quote both texts. Why? I think that we have at least got to make a strong argument for saying that for Jesus, the male-female bit is, is an intrinsically important part of marriage for him that we can't just set aside. That sex difference for Jesus was something of what marriage is. So the first reason is Jesus. The second, I think, is, is, is procreation, like having kids. Um, as we saw last week, like marriage is, is kind of given as a gift, amongst other reasons, um, as the context for having children and thus kind of enabling a key part of fulfilling the job that God has given humans to do, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to um, be fruitful and to multiply. Now, we said last week marriage is ordered towards procreation. What that means is that a marriage is still fully a marriage if it's, you know, procreation doesn't happen for choice or, you know, by, for tragic circumstance. But what kind of makes it a marriage is the ordering of this, the kind of, the, the, the setup, if you like. Like, marriage is still ordered towards procreation, even if the marriage itself isn't procreative for one reason or another. But male, female is required for that ordering. Like, a same-sex marriage can't be procreative by, you know, by virtue of its ordering, not simply by virue of choice or kind of tragic circumstance. Like, again, it seems here that in the text in Genesis, like, sex difference is something that's important um, and essential to the kind of definition of marriage in a way we can't just kind of delete or kind of easily amend. The third reason I think we see this in, in Genesis is because of the, this is a, this is a tongue twister, the suitability of the suitable helper. I know, it's snappy, isn't it? Um, the suitable helper um, is kind of given to Adam. And remember, we said last week, suitable helper kind of means co-worker, partner. It does not mean subordinate or little assistant. Um, but the suitable helper is given, as, and one reason that it's given to Adam is for marriage. Now, suitable helper in the Hebrew is two words. It's ezer, meaning helper, and konegdo, meaning suitable. Now, konegdo is a compound word. You can be... Compound words are tricky because, like, you know, it's like the word honeymoon. Um, it does not mean a moon made of honey, right? You know, sometimes you put two words together, you don't necessarily get the kind of component parts. However, um, the sum total of konegdo is, is, is the word ke, meaning like or as, and neged, which means against, in front of, or opposite. 
Um, now, we can see here that there is something in these kind of two, you know, in the K and in the Neged, of, of sameness, of, of likeness, but also of dissimilarity, of, of, of difference. Um, like, I, I think the way that Preston Sprinkle translates this, uh, he puts it as like opposite, is, is quite a compelling translation. Like, it's hard to know exactly what it means, but there is clearly something at play here of sameness and difference going on. Like, if it was just sameness that was the focus of the text, we've got to ask the question as to why the writer didn't just simply use the Hebrew word k, meaning like. Why did he use kenegdo, meaning like, you know, with the neged um, uh, also with it? There, there seems to be something here of similarity and difference that's at play. And so I think, again, we see something that sex difference is important for this. The fourth reason um, I, I think we, we can't just kind of change the definition here is because changing the parts of marriage changes the story they tell. Um, we looked last week, and we went big on this, but marriage tells the story of, of Christ's relationship and commitment to his church. It, it's, it's something that's bigger than just itself. It points beyond itself to God and so takes on greater significance. You lose that story with same-sex marriage because you lose the difference that the metaphor requires. You lose sexual union. You get sex act, but you don't get union, and so you kind of lose the way in which that, that story, that, that sign, points to our unity with Jesus and the eternal mutual ecstasy that that brings. You lose the possibility of childbearing and the way that that speaks of our relationship with Jesus being something that kind of bears and generates life. You lose the sameness and the difference in, in the kind of story. And, and, and the thing is, is that like, without sameness and difference, the story breaks down because you know, if it's a sign of Christ and the church, they're not interchangeable things. Like, the whole thing of Jesus is that he is like us so that he can, um, you know, he's on our level. He can relate to us. We can know him. He's lowered himself to you know, becoming human. But he is also you know, not like us. He is not the church. And therefore, he's able to be our savior. He's the one who is without sin. Like, you know, marriage is something that's created to symbolize Christ in the church. It's not that God was looking around going, oh, that'll do. That can symbolize Christ in the church. How handy. It was that he actually created it to be this sign and this symbol. Like, marriage is a sign. And, and same-sex marriage as a sign is, is, is just pointing in a different direction. It's telling a different story. It doesn't say quite the same thing. Um, and and we, can, we can underestimate the, the kind of significance of that. You know, we've said over the last few weeks that in our culture, we, we keep stopping at the sign that is sex. We keep stopping there, thinking that that's it, and forgetting that actually it's something that's designed to point beyond itself. It's a trailer, like a movie trailer, you know, of eternity. But what, it's, you know, what the trailer is, is it's something that kind of whets our appetite for eternity. It's not the kind of main event. Like, marriage is there to remind us of God's heart for us, his salvation plan, the goodness of eternity, our need for him. You know, the significance of that being a sign isn't a secondary thing. It's, it's a primary thing. And so I can't, although I would like to in many, many ways, for lots of reasons, see a persuasive argument from Scripture that the definition of marriage can be changed. Do I fully understand that? No. 
Um, but, but do I want to trust Jesus? Yes, I, I, I do. And I appreciate that it's a lot easier for me to say, as someone who is married, as someone who um, is straight, um, than it is for anyone else. But I, I can't see the argument from Scripture that says something different. And I think in, instinctively, and I think I have this reaction, we, we kind of assume that that's unfair. We assume that's unfair. And, and I, I think it's only unfair if it's something I'm saying and it's not something that God's saying. I think it's, that's only true if, if sexual fulfillment is fulfillment and that we can't be fulfilled apart from sexual relationship. Like, you know, we can't be fulfilled without a romantic or sexual relationship, which is the, the story we've been saying isn't true. It, it, it's only true if marriage isn't a sign, in which case it doesn't kind of have any bigger purpose or, 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 or kind of intent than just simply the enjoyment of the couple. And why would we want to restrict the enjoyment of couples? Um, it's only true if this life is it, rather than a precursor, a trailer, if you will, to eternity that will make this life appear like a blink in the eye by comparison. It's only true if God isn't good or if this isn't his will. Um, and so I don't think it's unfair, but I do think it's difficult. So what I want to do is I want to ask that question again. How does this sexuality story play out for people who aren't straight? Um, the answer is in part, I'm going to say a lot more than this, but in part, it, it plays out in the context that God gives us to enjoy and fulfill and channel our sexuality that we looked at last week, that are marriage and singleness. Now, you might think, well, hold on a minute, that just means singleness, right? And yes and no. So um, it still means marriage and singleness. There are a number of people, it's not a majority, but there are a number of people who um, would identify in, uh, as, as not straight, um, who would say they perhaps even have an exclusive attraction to those of the same sex, but have entered into what is called mixed orientation marriages. Now, mixed orientation marriage is a marriage between two people where one or both of the uh, partners uh, are not straight. Now, you might think, that is crazy. What, what, they're crackers, they're deluded. That's a pathway for destruction. Um, and clearly, it's something that I think you've got to enter into in a reflective, prayerful, careful way, probably with the, you know, the, the counsel of others. But there are a number of people who are living in those marriages and finding them to be incredibly compelling, fulfilling things. Um, if you want to read a, a book that tells a story of a couple who, who lived this out, there's a book called An Impossible Marriage by a, a couple called Laurie and Matt Creek, who, I mean, I'll be honest, I read that book and I, I thought, gosh, my own marriage sucks in comparison. Like, these guys like, are, are living something of marriage out that I feel like I've not even begun to discover. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, a more local example, I'm sure you don't mind me telling this, but um, is, is Sean Doherty, who's principal of uh, Trinity Theological College just at the road. Sean's married to Gabby. Sean would say that he is um, pretty much exclusively attracted to people of the same sex, but he's also found that he's attracted to Gabby, just that one person. And they have um, an incredible marriage and a beautiful family and some amazing children. So marriage is an option, but it is for some. It's for some. On singleness, we said last week um, that, that singleness can be a fulfilling way of life. 
but that actually our culture um, kind of impedes this. Our culture makes it different, difficult for it to be fulfilling in the kind of atomized, individualistic way that we exist so that you know, people don't live within intimate relationships. Um, and that we've got to work more to kind of make the single life in general kind of more plausible and more possible. Um, and I think that means things like opening up family life more freely and more generously um, to, to single people in, in general, but particularly people um, who are deciding that they are going to kind of commit to singleness as a way of life, um, kind of to, to live within what God's saying for their sexuality. Um, I think we've got to open up marriage more freely for people to come in, to be part of that life, to share in raising children, to um, find intimacy and community, to have somewhere to come back to at the end of the day. I think we've got to support things um, like uh, there's, there's a kind of relatively new thing that some people, um, some single people, but certainly some people who are same-sex attracted, are entering into that are called covenanted friendships. Um, these are people, some of whom are gay, um, who are recognizing the kind of transient, insecure nature of modern friendship and are entering into formal covenanted friendships. So they're kind of friendships uh, between you know, two people or perhaps a small group of people between single people and single people, married people and single people. Um, and, and it's kind of a friendship that's based on a promise. It's almost like people are kind of making a formal commitment to one another it, to, 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 to live life together in an intentional way across a lifetime. It's not marriage, it's not a sexual relationship, it's friendship. Um, and we will do a kind of um, bibliography um, I'll put in there a paper which just tells some of the stories of people living out uh, covenant of friendships. But I think we need to celebrate things like that. Um, maybe we need to find ways of even recognizing them in a meaningful way in church. I think they're a beautiful thing. But again, what is the better good news story that we've been trying to tell for those who aren't straight? I love this from Nate Collins. Nate Collins himself is, um, it, uh, with, I think he described himself as same-sex attracted. Um, he says this, the default approach to sexuality in many evangelical communities tends to emphasize aspects that bring struggle and, and temptation, not blessing and happiness. These communities tend to treat sexuality as a potential source of evil and sin and never talk about sexuality as a blessing. In these contexts, the framing of sexual desire as a possibility doesn't even get off the ground. I think particularly on this, we have taught something as a rule in a way that writes people off. But I think there is a better good news story at the heart here. And that's this. If, if you're not straight, your sexuality isn't something to just struggle with, to see as a burden or a problem. Because being gay is not some kind of perversion. It's not some horrible, dirty secret you have to live with. Because being gay isn't sinful. It's neither lesser, nor is it holier than straightness. Our goal is not straightness. Our goal is holiness. Like, straightness is not a synonym for being holy. It's what we do with our sexuality that kind of defines that. Holiness is about kind of giving ourselves over to God. It's about, you know, becoming his. It's about living his life. But of course, like, holiness is something that requires redemption. You know, we're all, all of us equally, um, and, you know, particularly when it comes to our sexuality, we're broken. You know, not all of the desires that we kind of experience lead to the kind of fullness of life that God has planned for us. But I think it's really important to say, like, orientation is not just about wanting to have sex with people. Um, 
we reduce it to that, but it's about much more. It's about an appreciation of beauty and goodness. It's about a desiring of intimacy and friendship. It's about a desire to kind of share life with another. Um, and I, I think, therefore, that redemption, if you're gay, is not about rejecting and resenting your desires, but it's about channeling them towards what God has created our sexuality for. Like, how do we channel those desires? How, like, what does a gay sexuality offer by way of possibility? Gay sexual desire reminds us of our need for God. It draws us into that. The you know, desire for another signals to the kind of deeper desire of our desire and our need for God. Um, you know, it can let it draw you into that. There is a goodness to that. Like, it draws us into and reminds us of our need for intimate relationships, especially those with others of the same sex. Like, the desire for intimacy with those of the same sex is a good and a beautiful thing that we should celebrate. Like, gay people will notice and value the beauty, goodness, and virtue in others of the same sex more readily and easily than straight people will. And that's a really good thing. Like, in that, they kind of show us all the value and need for intimate same-sex friendships, which we, I think, can all of us easily neglect or forget. I love the verse, I don't know if I put it on the screen or not, but um, uh, in Samuel, where David is talking about his friend Jonathan, and he says this. Oh, it is on the screen, great. Um, he says, your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Most of us can't wrap our heads around that, short of that being a gay relationship, but it's not. There's just something of an incredible intimacy that they're kind of like living out there. Um, you know, th th gay people are a gift to the church because they show us that, and they're better at entering into those kind of friendships than I am. I'm not always brilliant at forming friendships with other guys. It, I, it's just kind of the way I am. I need to learn to do that better and more. You know, the truth, and I, I appreciate, again, it's easy for someone who's married to say this, but the truth is that you don't need sex and romance to be fulfilled, but we do, we do need intimacy. We do need intimacy. And so ultimately, your sexuality as a gay person is still able to be a good gift that draws you into intimacy with God and others and has something to offer the church. Now, I'm coming to the end. You'll be pleased to know. You might agree with me, you might not. And um, I said this at the beginning, that that's fine. Like, I want us to be a community where we're okay with that, where it's not like, hey, you've got to think like Will thinks or you've got to clear off. Like, I want us to be a, a community that's okay with mess and with journey and with questions, even if that's hard or uncomfortable. I want it to be a community where we're okay to wrestle, even if that wrestle takes a lifetime, trying to work out what we think. You are welcome as you are. Come as you are and don't apologize. And, you know, if that's hand in hand with your, your partner, brilliant. We're so pleased to have you. You're so welcome. You are so welcome. Come as you are and don't apologize. I want it to be a space where people can wrestle safe in the knowledge that you'll be loved regardless. Um, again, if, if I've said something that doesn't line up with the life that you live, um, or the life as you know it, where there's dissonance, see that not as a moment of, uh, of condemnation, but see it as a moment of invitation. And that might simply be an invitation to question, to wrestle with Jesus, to, 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 to like seek what he's saying in the scriptures for you. And I'd encourage you, if, if that's you, to, to read. And don't just read kind of one book. Like, 
you know, you learn quite quickly that basically people are quite good at reading, writing books in a way that makes their argument compelling. Um, you can read one thing and be like, ah, oh, brilliant, I know this. Like, read that one person, and then read the person who disagrees with them, and then read the person who disagrees with them, and then the person who disagrees with them. And after a while, you start to get a bit of a sense of what, oh, I think I might have a sense of what maybe is going on here, rather than just kind of clinging on to something that, um, you know, we want to think. A couple of final questions for all of us. Are we, all of us, willing to embrace gay people as a gift to us and not as a problem? Are we willing to love people as they are, irrespective of what we think on sexual ethics? And lastly, if you're, if you're not straight, I just want to say what I've said at the beginning, because it, 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 to be honest, forget the rest if you, if you hear this. You are loved by Jesus, and you are loved as a gay person, not despite being gay. Your sexuality as a gay person is able to be a place of possibility, of blessing, and something through which God works in your life and in the lives of others. You are loved. Shall we pray? I don't know if Jodie and Katie want to rejoin. Jesus, we, um, we are all messily trying to find our way in this world with you. None of us escapes that. We're not those who've got it sorted, who are sitting on a high horse. Um, we're those who are broken, who are just reaching our hand out continually for you to save us and to rescue us and to pull us ever further into redemption and wholeness. And I, I pray that you do that for, for all of us now. And I particularly pray for those of us in the room who um, are part of the LGBTQ plus community, who you love so much. I just pray that right now you would just show them that, that you would just reveal yourself to anybody who is having that experience of life right now, that you would just show them how much you love them, how proud you are of them, and then whatever they think, you're doing the journey with them. Just come now, Lord, and just draw close to us. We need you.